Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9. Because God is holy and His Word is holy and we are to honor and, and revere and fear our Holy Lord. Let's stand as we read God's Word if you're able. We'll read chapter 9 verses 18 through 27. is God's holy and infallible word, Luke 9, 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man, what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Thank you, our glorious Lord, for this, your holy and infallible word. We pray that you would help us to receive it as it is, not the words of men, but the words given by your Holy Spirit, wherein you inspired the prophets and apostles to give forth your holy word. Help us to receive your word with gladness, with faith, and that you would mold and make us into the very image of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Some in secular psychology would say what most people really need is more self-esteem. If we just loved ourselves more, we would live a better life. Um, I, I did some research in this where I was looking at different articles and, and uh, it said that it, it's questionable whether people who commit crimes or, or those who are in jail have a problem with self-esteem or not. Um, some say, well, they, they commit certain things because of their lack of self-esteem. That's why they do the things that they do. But uh, I remember a, a, a doctor of psychology that taught at our therapy school, and she mentioned one piece of research that said that those who usually commit certain crimes as rape and other crimes, sometimes murder, have are very 
extremely high on the self-esteem scale because they think very highly of themselves and what they deserve and what they want to get and they go and they try to take it. The problem with a person who might have a great, very high self-esteem is that they're never willing to have anyone um, tell them that they're less than perfect, less than great, less than talented, less than wise, less than perfectly attractive. If you bring any such criticism to them, it can lead to anger. What do you call such a person? Uh, the answer is proud or arrogant, and that's, sin that's sinful, isn't it? This tells us that we need to look at the issue of self-esteem in accordance to Holy Scripture. The opening of our text marks a period where Jesus is getting a little bit more rest than before. If from the beginning of Luke's gospel, when Jesus began his ministry, all the way until today's text, he is healing many. In one occasion, he performs a, a series of healings and deliverances from the setting of the sun to the rising of the sun. And then they say, stay here, stay here. But Jesus says, I got to go and preach the gospel elsewhere. So then he's going about, he tries to get a rest on the boat in the previous chapters. He tries to get a rest on the boat. And then shortly after trying to get a rest on the boat, then the waves come and the storms come and the, the apostles are fearing for their lives. And they wake him up and they ask for Jesus to deliver them from the storm. And he speaks to the storm and he calms it. But immediately after he gets to the shore, there's a huge crowd waiting for him there. He goes to Bethsaida to have a, you could say, a, a sort of spiritual retreat with his apostles and a time in a more secluded place. It's the outskirts of the town of Bethsaida. And then the crowds follow him there. But he's, instead of turning them away, he's compassionate and kind to them. And he, he reaches out to them. He heals them. He teaches them. And then he feeds the 5,000. But finally, in today's text, verse 18 and following, all the way through Luke 11, Jesus is not going out from place to place, but he's spending a lot of time teaching and training his apostles. Why is he doing that? No, because he, his earthly ministry is limited. He's going to have to be crucified, resurrected, and then ascend to the Father. But his training at this particular time for his holy apostles is vital. As we come to today's text, the main focus is that God calls you to trust in Christ and deny yourself. God calls you to trust in Christ and deny yourself. We'll see this in two main points. Trust the resurrected Christ. Trust the resurrected Christ. And secondly, deny yourself to follow Jesus. Let's look at this first main point. Trust the resurrected Christ. Verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? Well, before we look at the answer, you have to consider that who Jesus is is one of the most important questions that any person could ever ask. The identity of Christ is one of the most important 
matters of which there is disagreement even today so if you meet someone and they seem or they say that they're religious maybe they say that they mention oh i thank god for such and such and say oh uh, you know you could ask them quite you could get to know them and ask them say well hey so anyway um who do you believe jesus is i like to say who he is rather than who he was because he's still living he's not dead he's in in heaven you might ask people that question and that gets to that really gets you a lot of information about what they believe you know i went to a presbyterian church in monroe louisiana and then i went to other presbyterian churches but it wasn't until years later that i really got a good grasp of who jesus was i even joined a presbyterian church took membership vows but didn't truly understand the nature of who Christ was and the nature of what he accomplished on the cross. I wish somebody would have said, hey, so Kevin, tell me, what you, tell me who you think Jesus Christ is. And not only that, what did Jesus Christ accomplish? And you know what? I mean, you're not, I don't think you're being, I don't think you're being, analyzing a person to a sinful degree but if you meet someone it's a loving thing to have these sort of discussions and then maybe by talking to someone about who jesus is if they don't have a biblical answer you can pray for god's grace you can pray for humility you can pray for courage especially to be able to give them an answer that comes from holy scripture to do that, it would be good if you're able to read the small text to maybe consider having a Bible app on your phone. Everyone, most, uh, everyone around here has phones. Um, but if our, whole, if our ancestors in the faith had opportunity to carry around the entirety of the Old and New Testament, sometimes with commentaries and access to even looking at Greek and Hebrew, all in a little device this big, don't you think that they would have taken advantage of that amazing, amazing resource? So if you, if you haven't done so yet, there are excellent, even free Bible apps that you can put on your phone. One that I used to use when I was using a free one was eSword. And you can look at, look at that, Google, Google that on your phone, eSword, and download that app. Notice... Then, when Jesus asked this question, who do the people say that I am? Look what they answered in verse 19. They answered and said, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, one of the prophets of old has risen again. Now, those who answered in these particular ways, John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the other prophets, those who answered in this fashion did not believe that Jesus was Messiah, but they were likely believing that Jesus was the one preparing the way for Messiah. But they were wrong. If you go back to Luke, it's here in your text, in your outline. In Luke chapter 117, uh, the angel told Zacharias concerning his son John, who was still yet to be born, it is he your son, John, who's yet to be born, who will go as forerunner before him 
in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready a people for the Lord. So people were confused at who Jesus was. They thought he could have been the forerunner when he actually was the one, the Holy Christ, the Messiah. So then Jesus changes the question and asks a different question, you could say. He asked his disciples, but who do you, my disciples, say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ, that is the Messiah of God. Jesus acknowledged this as the correct answer. In Matthew 16, 17, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter, the apostle, was given this understanding by the grace of God to understand who Jesus truly was. Don't you think maybe that some wanted to announce Jesus as Messiah from the rooftops? You know, because they were waiting for him, this promised seed of the woman, for thousands of years, and here he is in their midst, Jesus the Holy Messiah. Don't you want to go and tell? We found the Messiah, the Christ. But <laughs> Genesis 3, 6, 15, Genesis 3.15, God told the serpent of old, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The saints of old were long waiting for someone who would undo the work and the fall caused by the first Adam. That's what the Holy Messiah was going to do. He was going to bring peace between God and men. They mistook him for being a warrior who was going to give them earthly victory, but really those who understood who Christ was, they understood him as the suffering servant promised by Isaiah, Isaiah 53 and other such places. Paul says that Christ who has come into the world is the second Adam who undoes the failures of our first Adam in being victorious rather than falling to the devil. Jesus told his disciples not to announce this, that he is the Christ. Look at verses um, 21 through 22. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man, that is a prophetic um, sorry, that is a uh, messianic title. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Again, if, if you knew the Messiah was in your midst, why not tell everyone? Well, the reason was in, in John six fifteen, some sought to make him a king a ruler, maybe even a military ruler, by force. But that's not why Jesus came. The scope of Christ's ministry was not so small as to merely overthrow the Roman Empire. His scope of ministry was to overthrow the devil and his kingdom. He came to defeat Satan 
and to purchase his elect through his holy work, through his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, and then he would establish his eternal kingdom. Jesus was very aware that he himself was the suffering servant mentioned in Isaiah, the one who was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Look at verse 22 again. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. He had to die. He had to die to be a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. And he had to die the cursed death of a criminal on the cross so that those who put their faith in him would not bear the curse because Christ bore the curse for them. The work of Christ was not complete, though, without his resurrection. His resurrection was his ultimate sign that the Father and the Holy Spirit were upon him and that he ascended into heaven and he sits now at the right hand of the Father and he forever makes intercession for those who call upon him, upon his name in faith. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of your devotion because of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. You should seek to worship and obey him and live for him. Now, what does that look like? That leads to our next point. Deny yourself to follow Jesus. Deny yourself to follow Jesus. Look at verses 23 through 24. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. These verses call for a life of self-denial in order to put Christ and his kingdom first. A life of self-denial. Pleasing our triune God, your triune God, should be your first priority, your greatest desire, above that of relationships, above that of work, above that of leisure, whatever it may be, pleasing God should come first. Worshiping God should come first and foremost in your life. According to Dr. Stephen Nichols, he said that in the first few centuries after Christ, Christianity was at odds with the, with the Roman Empire. The Christians in Rome were marginalized, ostracized, and persecuted. Despite the opposition they faced, they found that they could worship freely in the catacombs. It's a place where they buried dead. He says the Romans didn't go down there, but they would send their slaves down there to bury the dead. So it was a relatively safe place to worship. Now, you have to take the word worship freely 
uh, in perspective of who was in rule at the particular time. You remember after the, the burning of Rome, who conveniently then blamed Christians for why Rome burned? Nero. He sought this as an opportunity to seek to try to wipe out that fledgling new religion. And yes, even though you might want to worship in the catacombs, in the catacombs underground, maybe you had to be concerned because if someone heard you singing and worshiping and praising God in the catacombs, uh, the Roman Gestapo might come after you. And basically what ended up happening was many Christians were captured. Some were burned alive. Burning alive was a penalty or a, um, a way of committing capital punishment for someone who committed arson. So they would burn some alive. Some were fed to dogs and some were pierced through with these really long spears called pikes. And they were stuck around a pavilion where Nero and his, his party goers could have light by the party by lighting the bodies of these Christians stuck on the pikes. So you could say, yes, they had a relative freedom to worship in the catacombs for a time and to a degree. But the reason I say all this is that what our forefathers in the faith went through to sacrifice to worship God should make us say, you know what? I really think I should take every advantage to worship the Lord our God. Because if, if my forefathers are willing to suffer the risk of death and torture to worship God, don't you think it's kind of important? The answer should be yes. For the early Christians, and even for those Christians now in the Middle East, and some in, in parts of Asia, to worship is to worship at risk for your life, or at least being in, placed in prison and torture. And for them, you think about those in the Middle East, if you're caught worshiping, you might be imprisoned, tortured, or some even executed. Verse 24 has special application. Jesus said, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Special application to them. But don't you think there's a measure in which we can apply this to ourselves? Our life is not our own. It is purchased through the blood of Christ. We should seek to lose our life for the sake of the kingdom. Live it not for ourselves, but for him who died for us. So you may not have, you may not have to risk your life or imprisonment to go to church, but you have to put the worship of God above your desires for money or material possessions. Verse 25. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? He forfeits his very soul. So place the worship of God above the desire for money and material wealth. To serve Christ, you must be willing to die to the desire to please others or to have the esteem of others, especially unbelievers. There are people, and I, I grew up as one of them, who what we would call are people pleasers. You always want to have everyone like you. You always want to be seen and esteemed in the sight of others. 
Jesus says in verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I have a book um, called When God is small and people are big or I think it's when I think it's when people are big and God is small I reverse the title when people are big and God is small and that's what happens in some people's hearts people are big grand gargantuan and they fear them but there's not really much fear of God because he's kind of puny in their heart and mind Dr. Ed Welsh, who wrote the book, he, he wrote about the dangers of fearing man and of worldly self-esteem. He says, We do not need to be persuaded or manipulated to put our hope in people more than God. Like a child's temper tantrum, this is not a, a behavior that needs to be observed or learned. And it's, since the fall, he says we have somewhat like an, an, an innate sense to do this, right? Since the fall. But the world's emphasis, he says, on self-esteem also contributes to the fear of man. Here's an example of what he says secular books teach regarding how you are to improve your self-esteem. He says you are to achieve some success. So if you want to have self-esteem according to the world, achieve some success. Well, the problem is then you've got to compare yourself to others. And what if you don't compare? Or what if some ha something happens and you get a disability and you can't work any longer? Then do you then lose your worth? Okay, the other one is that you are to surround your yourself with people who affirm you. Surround yourself with people who affirm you. Well, then the problem with that is that your worth in life is dependent upon what people say not what God says and lastly he says if you have money your self-esteem can be inflated by hiring a warm empathetic therapist well we call that an affirming therapist who affirms every little thing you say and do and you should feel good about yourself no matter what so the answer to the issue of self-esteem is that you are to find your eternal life, your reason for living, and your value or your, your esteem in life, not through the world, but through Christ, through what God has done for you. You can say, I am of great worth because God saw fit to send his eternal son, his only begotten son, to suffer his wrath, to die on the cross, to suffer the pains of hell for me to be saved. Why would God do that for someone so undeserving as me? But the fact that he did it means that you have value and worth because God did that for you if you have that sort of faith 
Now, when we read verse 27, we have to conclude that here, that Christ here is not speaking about the second coming. The first time I read this verse, I kept thinking, oh, he's talking about the second coming, the second coming. But look at it carefully. It's not according to the second coming mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 27. But I say to you truthfully that there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, the reason why I say this can't be speaking of the second coming when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead is because everyone he was speaking to has since died. So therefore, we have to logically conclude Jesus here is not speaking of the second coming. According to Dr. Hendrickson, I I love this quote, he says, um, this verse here likely refers to Christ's glorious resurrection as an act of power. If you want to read on that later, 1 Corinthians 6.14. His return in the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, demonstration of power in the kingdom. Messiah's coronation in heaven, this is mentioned in Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. His exaltation to the Father's right hand, far above every principality and authority and power. To Christ has been given an everlasting kingdom. The kingdoms of this world have been made the kingdoms of our Christ, and he rules them with a rod of iron. So that's speaking about those things. Again, his resurrection, his resurrection, the day of Pentecost and his glorious ascension to become at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all nations, tribes, and tongues, and peoples. Again, brothers and sisters, our text calls for you to trust Christ and to deny yourself. Peter was right, as given to him by the Father, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the promised Messiah, long awaited. The same Messiah, we are told, must suffer many things, had to suffer many things, was rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and was killed and raised upon the third day. If you're a Christian, put your faith in him who suffered many things for you. If you're a Christian, give thanks to him who has suffered many things for you. If you're a Christian, worship him who died and rose again for you and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Again, he was rejected, beaten, mocked, despised, He was rejected so that you would be accepted before the Father. Have you put your faith in this Lord Jesus Christ? If not, pray that God would help you to to believe and trust in Him. Pray that prayer. Say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. You are called as a Christian to deny yourself to follow Jesus. If you wish to follow Christ, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow him. Taking up your cross daily means how you treat your kids, how you treat your family, how you treat your spouse, how you treat the people at work in following the Lord Jesus. Put others first sometimes rather than putting yourself first.
deny yourself, but also take up your cross for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Life is just not about earning money. It's about building the kingdom in whatever way that you can. Again, Jesus warns, though. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. Don't be ashamed of the Lord Jesus. Don't be ashamed to pray in front of others. Sometimes if you're gathering with a family or your family in the midst of some place, and there are maybe people who are unbelievers around you that might gawk and roll their eyes if, you, if you're going to pray and give thanks to God as you prepare to enjoy a meal. Remember who it is you're praying to, that God is the great God, the King of heaven, the eternal everlasting one, the mighty Lord. And in comparison, who are they who, who are surrounding you and who are gawking? Peons, peons. They're insignificant in comparison to the greatness and the wonder and the glory of our eternal, magnificent God who sent His Son to suffer and die for sinners such as us. Let's pray together. We pray, our glorious Lord, that You would be far greater in our hearts and minds that we would exalt you as the king of glory, that you would be the one who would be greatest, and that our esteem of ourselves would be based upon what you have done for us through our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you that you counted us worthy to receive the grace and truth and the holy faith delivered once to the saints through Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us to trust in him, to live not for ourselves, but for him who died for us. Help us to take up our cross and to deny ourselves and to humble ourselves before you, O God. For we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. For a hymn of dedication, let's stand and sing 513. We'll stand and sing 513. Jesus, I my cross have taken. 513.